This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Ooh, that was actually a pretty good clink. That was a great clink. You could tell we're excited to talk about this little number. This movie called House of Wax. Yeah, 2004? Five, I think. 2005, that's right. Starring Alicia Cuthbert and Paris Hilton. (sighs) Jared (laughs) Padalecki. Let's take a listen to the trailer. You see anybody? No, nobody. Hello? I don't think anyone's here. Hey, how's that House of Wax? It is wax. Literally. This is weird. Look how detailed this is. Tell me this doesn't look real. You're saying that that's a real person underneath? They're all wax, everyone. Please, somebody! We're out there, you gotta be careful. I am being careful. Okay, full talk. Full talk. Full talk. Full disclosure, real, real talk. talk. <laughs> I fucking love this movie, man. Yeah. I own this movie. I recommended this film, and I sincerely do not think that it's as bad as as all of the nonsense. Well, yeah, I, I read that it was nominated for Worst Movie and Worst Remake, and Paris Hilton won the Razzie. And the movie, it's not a great movie. No. It's a schlocky teen horror movie. Of course. But it's a fun-ass time yeah. in the way that schlocky teen horror movies can be. Well, and of course, there's like all of the dumb exposition beforehand of like, why would this crew of teens, yeah. of course, these kids kids are 35 years old but they're playing right yeah definitely that but that's a classic trope and then there's a couple of other things that are really on the nose right. about like the killer was a part was a Siamese twin and like there's all this Siamese twin imagery oh, yeah. throughout the movie at the end they literally <laughs> land back together like again yeah, yeah it's very it's, winky yeah. but I just but fun yeah totally fun and when I because I you were saying it's 2005 I was a senior in high school right absolutely even when we started watching it there were some serious sense memories happening right I have, like an Interpol song Played yeah, there was like, a song. I was like, oh, th- I'm walking through New York City yeah. back when I was in college <laughs> Where again. Where am I? Why? <laughs> That's me with uh, the end credit theme, which is a little band called My Chemical Romance singing Helena. Anyway, so that just at least... It gives you context because I saw the movie in theaters and I remember just being like, oh, yeah, I think I saw it by myself. That was a time in my life when I was going to movies by myself and felt really grown up and shit. And (laughs) it was fun. (laughs) But a lot of people came to see this to see Paris Hilton get murdered. Exactly. And good point because, oh, and this is another thing. I don't know why I haven't been using this on IMDb, but the taglines section. Oh, boy. This movie had some great (laughs) taglines. What do we got here? The flesh is weak. Wax is forever. Oh, God. (laughs) This was in the trailer. There's a reason they look so real. Because they're real people underneath the wax. Sure. Yeah. Sure. One is, this looks like it's translated from German. Hunted, murdered, displayed. (laughs) (laughs) And then this one I like, pray, slay, display. (laughs) That's pretty good, yeah. We were saying this is... A, a remake of the original House of Wax. Yeah, from 1953. But that was also a remake of a 1933 movie called Mystery of the Wax Museum. 
Oh, okay. So this is an idea that's been around for a long totally. time. I'm sure that there were even like stories that predate the movies of being like, you know, that wax museum. Like, what if they came alive? Right. Like Just, this incredibly creepy place. Like, what if horror happened there? R- right, exactly. And I've never seen the original one with Vincent Price, but I, from what I understand, aside from just having a wax museum and the uh-huh. title has nothing to do with it. So that's not like a building literally made of wax? <laughs> it's <laughs> no, literally so. wax. <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> Padalecki. Well, yeah, and so, okay, I think the reason why this movie gets the worst rap is, of course, Paris Hilton right. being involved because she's she's trash. She's known <laughs> as trash. She, trash was her brand. But apparently before she was even cast, Jennifer Connelly and Kate Winslet were originally considered. That, so just imagine okay. how different <laughs> it could have been. And frankly, when it comes to like the actual chills and spills and thrills and whatnot, like uh, this yeah. movie's good. Yeah. Like, I think once all of the nonsense got out of the way of like building up these quote unquote characters. Well, I also had like, I had an issue where it was like, you just putting wax over a human being is not going to preserve their their bodies forever. Right. Like we've talked about what happens to a dead body when it actually dies, it starts to decompose. Yeah. And it's all this internal stuff, like the bacteria that's in your gut. <laughs> right actually like starts eating the body from the inside so just like covering it in wax is not gonna like preserve it it's not gonna do what it does in the movie which is if they get then exploded a bunch of like roaches and bugs crawl out like that's not what happens inside your body there's like the newly waxed guy who when he they touch his face his like whole flesh falls off but then there's like somebody who gets a wax figure who's been there for like years and years gets shot through the head and yeah there's like roaches and decomposition in there but in a way that would never be realistic wouldn't happen because the wax you know ostensibly preserves all of that shit right. or like protects it from roaches and pests but it's wax inside. it's, it's not, wax it's not like a perfectly secured system a sealant but that aside right. like appreciating that for what it is I was like these are cool effects yeah. and it looks scary it, the, the whatever happened to baby Jane feature in the movie theater they're, they're just like fun right. fun details that you're like wow it would be fucking crazy if you ended up in this town of wax because you know town of stuff. wax is really the cool element right because they keep thinking that they see people it turns out they'll as well yeah. and whatever. Of course, when we were watching the movie theater scene, we were like, "Those are just extras. They don't even have masks." Yes, there were people <laughs> clearly breathing and blinking. And shit. Some of them were made of wax, but most of the people, the extras, were definitely real people. I was like, "Oh, all right, oh, that's totally bad. <laughs> But anyway, so back to this whole thing about Paris Hilton. So it's like once they put her into the mix, because that was like height of Paris Hilton popularity, I or at least so. I think, the, or at least the crest the of it, yeah, of the, <laughs> the realization of like people might want to see her oh, murdered, murdered, and yeah. So then the rest of the cast was built around her. Mm-hmm. Although I think Alicia Cuthbert is great, and she's she the best. Job. But I love, I've always, I've had a big crush on we her. We were talking about time, how she's yeah. just like wicked hot. She's the best. (laughs) But I guess Warner Brothers gave Paris Hilton permission to sell t-shirts that said on May 6th, watch Paris die in order to promote the movie. So she knows what a piece of trash she is. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that that's, yeah, like she was owning that and she capitalized on that and she signed on to die in her lingerie. I was very Mm -hmm. happy about that. And also (laughs) while filming in that sugar mill chase scene, she was embarrassed by her scream. So she had the whole cast and crew scream along with her for the first three takes because she's a bona fide actress. Just picturing that scene is such a weird, awkward yeah. thing of like, okay, we're going to accommodate right. her, I guess. <laughs> she's making us a lot of money. Although they did, the, the budget was like $30 million, They made $32 million. Oh, man. <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> $2 million proceeds there. Yeah. But, and apparently there are a ton of reports of people cheering in the theaters when she got killed. And yeah. Dumb. Um, yeah. She did it to herself. Yeah. Oh, I read that Alicia Cuthbert 
when she remember they like glue her mouth together or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They she refused to do just like fake prosthetics and actually had her lips super glued, which I feel like really? looked very uncomfortable, certainly when she ripped them open. But like, it, would you be able to breathe with those? Well, that's, that's a good, That actually, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things I looked into this week was I've always had this thought of like, what if you had a terrible cold and your nose was all stuffed right. and then you got kidnapped and taped your mouth? Right, right. And it's like, <laughs> what would happen? Like, would you just suffocate and die? What I read was that when you have a blocked nose, it's because of inflamed sinuses, not really because of the material that's up there. Right, right. So when the human body is deprived of oxygen, there's a natural response to clear the sinuses, similar to like if you smell something spicy. Makes sense. The old wasabi receptors. Exactly. <laughs> and you can try it at home, but your body has to reach a point where it thinks it's suffocating and you'll be extremely uncomfortable and right. kind of panicked. But then your body has this natural response to clear out the nose to allow for you to survive. Wow, that's really interesting. Like a little built-in nasal spray, but only if your life depends exactly, on it. Exactly, exactly. So I don't recommend trying it at home, but there are people who talk about the virtues of taping your mouth at night. What? Yeah. Oh, maybe for apnea? For a bunch of reasons, including apnea. I read this thing about how much it helps with sleep and other things that breathing affects. The core idea behind it is that the mouth is for eating and the nose is for breathing. Right. And people who tape their mouths at night report deeper sleep and less snoring. It helps with asthma and allergies because the nose warms, filters, and moisturizes the air when the mouth breathing sends cold, dry air to the back of the throat and the lungs. Totally. Think about that. Well, the reason I think about that is because boyfriend's got severe sleep apnea. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm even thinking, I'm like, Josh... Tape your mouth well, shut. Well, is there a CPAP machine in this future? Oh, I sure fucking hope Those not. Well, are I mean, not he, fine. they had a, like sinus issues and whatnot, but it totally makes sense because it's the worst when he's on his back and mm-hmm. it's his mouth that's open. Right. And it makes sense if you're not getting like the warm moisture mm-hmm. air. You're just like. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly. The worst. It's my dad too. They also claim that it helps with dental health and better breath because a dry mouth can be bad for those things, and your mouth gets all dried out if it's open during the oh, night. Really? Okay. But I also feel like if you taped it, then just the morning breath in the morning, just like well, that's what you would. <laughs> but I guess it's the air that makes that like happen less naturally, or uh-huh. something where it's like a moist mouth helps be. <laughs> right. I don't know. Whatever. But they also report generally calmer mind and body, and then there's this thing about nitric oxide. Because apparently we produce 25% of the nitric oxide that we get in in the sinuses, but only if we breathe through the nose. And the thing that I read claims that nitric oxide is key to athletic endurance and regulation of blood pressure and stuff like that. Hmm. So the killer was really helping her out. Yeah. <laughs> they do say, though, don't tape your mouth if you've been drinking heavily. <laughs> Right. Which could sense. be incredibly dangerous. It's the worst idea. Final tidbit here. Alicia Cuthbert, she got stuck in the wax bed that's at the end of this movie because they filled the bed with peanut butter. Uh-huh. And she's like a little shrimp like me. She's like 5'2". So right. she was just getting like stuck in that. But could you imagine like also being the set designer on that being like, uh, bring in the dump trucks of peanut, of peanut butter. butter. And that then must having have been to reset fun. it every time. Oh my God. And then you the have to like smooth it out and make sure everything looks nice. Oh man. Choosy moms. It- choose Jeff for that. <laughs> Thank you. Science. All right, so I think it's worth doing a little refresher course on the Uncanny Valley effect. Yes. Because, well, we were just talking about why 
there's, you know, tales of wax museums or dolls right. museums of any kind that freak people out for so many years. Yeah, well, just looking at these things that are like human but not. Not quite. It's very unnerving. Now, I don't remember exactly which episode we talked about this. It was a long time ago. But it was we, a long time ago. We definitely talked about the Uncanny Valley. But just to remind everybody, this was first hypothesized by Japanese roboticist Masahiro Mori in 1970. Should, should I interrupt just to say real sure. quick? I believe it was in the Total Recall episode. Oh, yeah. It makes up because of the fucking the bartender, the cab driver. That and also there was that whole like he had that head that was like two weeks. Oh, right. Two, <laughs> two weeks. weeks. Goes yeah. nuts. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> Perfect. The theory is that as robots become more human-like, people would find them more acceptable and appealing. But when they were not quite human, people developed a sense of unease and discomfort. Then, of course, if human likeness increased beyond this point, the emotional response returned to being positive. So it's this distinctive dip in the relationship between human likeness and emotional response that's called the uncanny valley. Right. Like when it looks like a Terminator with all the metal exoskeleton, we don't think it looks human. Right. But when but Arnold comes in, you're like, ah. And we know that he's not human. Right. <laughs> so, of course, most common examples are with androids, computer game characters, and lifelike dolls. Mm -hmm. As of 2015, 510 academic papers referenced the effect compared to just 35 in 2004. So okay. clearly the interest, and certainly as these technologies are becoming more sophisticated, I think right. more people are like, oh man, the Westworld has freaked me out, right. I don't know. I mean, we're living in the uncanny valley of robotics right now. Right, like, we, we are may in the valley. get past that, but like we're deep in the valley currently. Yeah, and I think it's especially interesting because it's very difficult to research. I mean, even academics debate whether it exists at all. If but, I remember correctly from the research that I did before, it was something to the effect of like, evolutionarily, when you see somebody who is sick or there's something wrong about them, mm. you are incentivized to stay away from them. Right. And so that it may be related to this fight or flight response of like, you see something that's sick and you go, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, it all kind of boils down to our human pattern finding brains right. as with everything, right? Exactly. We try to categorize each other, things, whatever, to make mm -hmm. it make sense in our, our crazy little brains. <laughs> but so this recent published study by Maya Mather and David Reichling looked at 80 real world robots and their data showed the rise, dip, rise, the valley that, that Maury had predicted. Mm -hmm. And this was found with the original robots, but also with CGI images built to systematically vary in human likeness. So right now it looks like there's three theories that seem particularly promising, at least to explain this uncanny valley thing. So first of all, it might occur at the boundary where something moves from one category to another, in this case between non-human and human category. Mm -hmm. I read about a study where mannequin faces were morphed into human faces and they found a valley at the point where the inanimate face started to look alive. Okay. A second theory is that it may hinge on whether we're able to believe that near-human entities possess a mind like we do. Mm -hmm. So there was a study by Kurt Gray and Daniel Wegner that found that robots were only unnerving when people thought that they had the ability to sense and experience things, and robots that did not seem to possess a mind were not frightening. Hmm. Right? So again, with like androids and fucking sex robots and right, stuff, I right. think that's kind of where this goes. <laughs> a final theory is that it occurs because of mismatches between aspects of the robot's appearance and or behavior. And this seems kind of the most intuitive to me. So Angela Tinwell's work has looked at many types of mismatches, including speech synchronization and speed and facial expressions. So there was a 2013 study that showed that near human agents that reacted to a startling noise by showing surprise in the lower part of their face, but not the upper part, were found to be particularly eerie. Okay. So like, it, emotion should be full faced. Right. And when like, it's, there's something wrong yeah, that you inherently like see. Happy eyes, but like, I'm spooked down below. Uh -huh. It's just weird because that's not how 
how human faces work, right? right. So it it's actually suggested that this might be reminiscent of the pattern of expressive behavior exhibited by humans with psychopathic traits. Uh-huh. Right? So all of these things kind of make sense. And and even this, the author of the article that, that I found, her latest research is built on Tinwall's findings and looked at responses to faces with different emotional expressions shown in the eyes and the rest of the face. And she found that the eeriest combinations were those where happy faces were paired with fearful or angry eyes, which possibly suggests trying to suppress an unpleasant emotion. So, okay, uh, right? so it's like it's like you're kind of picking up on these potential lies. Yeah, social that, cues. Yeah. And kind of to your point before about like things that don't seem right. You're mm-hmm. like, okay, all of the patterns of behavior that I've witnessed in my life that seems normal is like if someone is smiling, their eyes are going to look a certain way. But right. if they look terrified up above with like a happy face, it just doesn't seem right. Right. It's uncanny. Mm. <laughs> and there's another element where like if there's a potential for danger, you might as well be worried about it. Whereas if even if it's not really a danger, mm-hmm. your body would be safer to tell you to run just right. in case. I mean, it's why people say like, well, the hairs on the back of your neck yeah, rise up. Exactly. But, you know, follow your gut, go <laughs> with your gut. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, some people's guts go too far. But anyway, <laughs> that they but, do. <laughs> but there's there's also one theory of an uncanny wall which suggests that it will always be possible to tell artificial from human because as robots become more realistic, we will also become more sensitive and will always be able to tell that something is not right. Now, when we were talking about this in the in the pre-meeting, we were you were kind of like, but I don't know. Like, can we tell? Well, like currently, obviously we can. Right, right. But it is with any of these technologies, whether it's like, will, will a computer ever beat a human in chess? Yeah. Or will a human ever be fooled via aim instant messenger like with a robot and it's like currently humans are being fooled by instant messenger and so why would it stop there or why would it stop at auditory and eventually we will get good enough because of machine learning and things like Mm -hmm. that where you see all of these subtle changes in humans that the robots are analyzing. Right. And I mean, I definitely hesitate to say never about anything. That seems like a really... Like, it it reminds me of like the sound barrier. It was yeah. like, it, that was a wall that we thought we could never break until we did. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I, I do think is important to at least distinguish is like, when you're talking about a computer being able to beat you at chess, that's like a computational mathematical thing, right, which, right. which I do think is different from like the visual. Even the auditory, definitely. like we were talking about how like robocalls these days they've fucked with to make them sound human to the point where they're like, um, oh, um, you know, oh, like, um, uh, yeah. yeah. And like, there's a, th- there's a new technology that Google is starting to roll out or they're not rolling it out yet, but they've demoed it. Mm-hmm. And it's the ability to have your Google assistant call actual local businesses on your behalf. Oh, wait, I saw a video of that. I think they, I don't know if they did it on the daily show or something, probably, but like they probably. definitely did a segment where you're like, yeah, and and part of me feels like we should put stuff in place now, basically saying if you're talking to a robot, that robot should alert you up front. Right. Like if the phone call starts with, hey, this is the Google Assistant calling on behalf of the person, mm-hmm. then whoever's on the other side knows that they're talking to an algorithm and that they don't have to treat it in a certain way. Right. Whereas if you're not telling them up front, it may be like a while in before they realize like, oh, I'm talking to a robot. Yeah. I, well, the manipulation, the I mean, and they clearly know what they're doing. They're like, right. we obviously want to fool people into thinking that they're talking to human beings. What do human beings do? They say, um, and blah, blah. But like, what is this for? To get people to stay on the phone so that they don't fucking hang up on you. It's like, who who's asking for this? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> well, and before we had laws that said that you couldn't do this and then they, you know, yeah. wrote it. But, you know, back to the story, I do think yeah. it's because I think those are all like super valid points. And that's why I, I almost 
find this distinction between the uncanny valley and like a Turing test mm -hmm. because I think we're constantly getting fooled in that regard. Right. But again, this seems to be more with the the visual. Like there's something about being able to see like a human face and, yeah. and I agree that maybe that is totally wrong but I do wonder like we'll kind of evolve along with them too and we might be right. able to dis distinguish these things that would be great yeah. I do kind of feel like it's going to be the hardest to pull that off but that once it's pulled off yeah. you know well yeah because I mean even to your point about the, the robocalls like the first few times I was like yeah this is Joya what's right. up hey and then I was like Wait a second, yeah. this doesn't seem like a human. And it took me a while, but then, you know, now I don't answer. But then they're going to adjust to you adjusting right. to that. It's like this constant, you know, right. cops and, and the, robbers. Totally. And we're not going to trust anybody. It's all going to suck. <laughs> right. Everybody, we're going to think everybody's a robot. Right. Like, <laughs> are, they all are, aren't they? We, oh, everybody's sheeple, right? Sheeple. <laughs> So, in this movie, the house is literally made of wax. So I decided to look into buildings made of unusual shit. Like, literally. <laughs> literally made of wax. <laughs> so I read about a few new ideas that's basically building stuff out of recycled materials. Mm -hmm. One is literally that in Kamikatsu, Japan, where they built a 26-foot-high wall out of windows from abandoned houses in the area, the wallpapers from old newspapers, and it, there's a chandelier made from recycled bottles and stuff like that. Awesome. O in Ohio, there's a building that's made entirely out of shipping containers. Mm -hmm. it's oh, a, yeah, I read about that. Yeah, it's a 25-unit apartment building that's made up of 54 five-ton containers. One benefit of it is that it took a week to build it, whereas traditional framing would have taken at least three months. Wow. That's fucking awesome. And you can then like take a lot of these materials and like put stuff over it so it doesn't look like a fucking Shit, shipping right, container totally. and, you know, be a terrible place to live. And then there's like a lot of local projects that I read about where it's like turning old shit into nice durable homes. Right, right. Like, I read about earthquake-resistant homes being built in Nigeria that are each built from 14,000 plastic bottles that they packed with sand. Amazing. And then you can, like, use grout around the bottles, and then it winds up creating this earthquake-proof structure. structure. Cool. In Mexico, there's hotel rooms that are made of old sewer piping, mm -hmm. which looks remarkably cool considering what it literally is. Right. And there's a big pavilion that have been made out of old sinks, like, Mostly it's used bottles and cans being stacked up to be used as walls. I but love that. There's a lot of recycling going That's great. on. great. And then there's the famous ice hotel in Sweden. Oh, I was good. I was like, igloos, am I right? Right, <laughs> yeah. The ice hotel is rebuilt every winter from huge ice blocks that are harvested from a nearby river and then molded. The final room designs each year is left to artists that are chosen through a submission process. Oh, cool. Apparently, they offer both warm and cold accommodations, uh -huh. and they recommend that you book one night cold and a few nights warm. Right, yeah. Like, you want to experience it all? It makes me wonder. I'm like, who are the people that want to... I mean, yeah, maybe if you live in a hot place, you're like, I want to chill out a little bit. Well, the truth is, I want to see what it's all about. Like, right. I would do one night in the cold thing, especially knowing that I have, like, three nights ahead of in me the in the warmness. warm. Yeah. And, yeah, there's a few of these ice hotels around the world now, and the pictures of them are just Beautiful, gorgeous. Sure, yeah. Like, unbelievable. And gorgeous fucking, works. <laughs> gorgeous works. I'm thinking Elsa's house in Frozen. Finally uh, saw yeah. that on an airplane. <laughs> I still haven't few, seen few months that. Ago. Well, okay, yeah, I mean... Having a house of wax, though, that doesn't seem like the smartest thing. In the no, world. you wouldn't. It, what if Super it got too hot that day? <laughs> Plus, they're in like fucking Louisiana in the summer <laughs> yeah, or something like that. It like, would what? not work. Everything would be melty. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the main reason I wanted to do this movie is because recently we 
We're talking. Why was I talking about Madame Tussauds? What was it on a recent? It was a recent. Oh, episode. masks. We were talking about the mask, and she was the, a famous the mask, mask maker. Of course, yes. <laughs> anyway, well, some of the shit that I learned about her, I was like, this woman is fascinating. Right. So she I, started during the revolution or the, the French, French Revolutionary, Revolutionary War. Yeah, yeah. The, so is that what it's called? <laughs> the French Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the French Revolutionary War. Yeah, they were, totally. you know, all in the same hundred years. Right. Totally. All right. So I, I learned about this woman. Fascinating story. Let's get into it. So she was born in Strasbourg in 1761. And she never knew her father, who was a German soldier named Groschholz, whose face had been hideously mutilated in the wars, and his lower jaw had been shot away and replaced by a silver plate. Wow. He actually died two months before Marie was born, but man, just quickly, you're like, think about what they used to do to deal with those things. Well, yeah, like the prosthetics of the olden days, but also just thinking about how, like, this person wound up, so that all happened before... Before she was born, yeah, you would think it would be like, oh, and How far before she was born did uh, Two months. Wow. So you would think it would be like, I've witnessed my father's mutilated face and right. it really got inside me to build wax faces build or Build faces, whatever. yeah. Nope. <laughs> it was just all Maybe it was in the back of her head. <laughs> right. Like, she must have known. Or maybe, it, like, she saw pictures or, no, yeah, not no. in 1761. <laughs> paintings. Paintings, I don't know. Or maybe know. her mom was like, your father was disgusting. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so her, her young widowed mom, Anne-Marie, raised her the the child in Switzerland and the mom became a housekeeper for a doctor and anatomist named Philippe Curtius who also had a talent for wax modeling and he ran a museum of waxwork heads and busts so he considered Marie a great student and so she learned the craft from him just as a kid and when he moved to Paris Marie and her mom then joined him and she became his assistant and then when she was there in Paris, that's when she met a bunch of the leading French aristocrats and intellectuals of the day, and she even modeled both Voltaire and Rousseau from life. Mm. Now, in the 18th century, waxworks became a popular paid attraction, and women were surprisingly prominent in the trade, and this is perhaps because wax was seen as a quote-unquote lesser medium for sculpting, or okay. because male academics and artists considered it an amateur pursuit. <laughs> but it, specifically in the 1780s, she was employed to teach Madame Elizabeth, who was King Louis XVI's sister, and so she met him and many of the royal family but then around this time the French Revolution started going and it even created a new demand for wax figures as Pamela Pilbeam details in her book Madame Tussauds and the History of Waxworks the sculptures became a sort of real time political commentary for Parisians so they would go through these salons and it would just be like this was before heads started rolling this was like just the people you know and they would so it was busts of people that the people hated yeah, or just like nobility in the like people of the time, like you for know, for the I guess- purposes of like displaying them or for like effigy burning or something probably well if they say like political commentary maybe it's in the same it's a 1761 or like that version of like donald trump am i right we're gonna buffoon lampoon him or like it was kind of a lampooning of sorts so yeah i guess the thing i was curious about was like were the wax figures made to look more demony you know or like it was all from life perfect representations of yeah okay but i would imagine because you know, it's not like you could turn on the TV and see what these people look like. There was something about like these people who are huge in public life, you being able to see them and I guess feel more a part of that commentary. Right. That's that's my assumption. And then they were all looking at it like those necks look real <laughs> sliceable. Look too long. Yeah. Well, so Curtius, her uncle of sorts, he later developed a Jacobin sympathies, and Marie met Robespierre and other revolutionaries in his circle. It's been a long time since I've read about the French Revolution, but I don't know if it's Jacobins or Jacobins, what whatever. But they're the crazy left wings that eventually started like beheading right wing aristocrats and shit started the reign of terror extremism is scary guys (laughs) so anyway as the reign of terror rolled along Mm -hmm. pun intended Mm -hmm. and while courteous was out participating in political and military life 
it often fell to Marie to make death masks of the revolution's recently decapitated victims, many of whom had been her uncle's friends. So in one episode, the leaders of the mob that hacked the Princess de Lamballe to pieces stood over Marie while she took a cast of the severed head. And she had actually known the princess and liked her, but was just like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like, what am I going to do? I don't want my head gone. Totally. I mean, I, I mean, it's fascinating to know, like, clearly she it wasn't like she was like, I would love to do this. But then right. also how she definitely capitalized on it. Right. Like she was sort of like, I guess this is the world I live in. Might as well not be decapitated. Yeah. And have some money in my purse. It doesn't seem like this, but there was like, remember after 9-11, all the people who would like be selling 9-11 stuff right. like right in the months after it. Yeah. Like and trying to capitalize on it. Well, it doesn't sound like she was doing that. She wasn't doing that, but. It just also tells you like society at the time, and I'll get into this, of like what she kind of became as a cultural fixture. Okay. So, okay, throughout the Reign of Terror, then she also made a mold of the head of Louis XVI after his execution. When Charlotte Corday murdered the radical Jean-Paul Marat in his bathtub, Marie got to the scene so fast the killer was still being processed by law enforcement as she started to work on the head. She then took a cast of Charlotte Corday's face, who was the killer after her execution. She later made heads of both Marie Antoinette and Robespierre, which we talked about. And that's what's kind of fucked up is like in her memoirs, she claimed that she, quote, sat on the steps of the exhibition with the bloody head on her knees, taking the impressions of their features. And it just puts me in this headspace of like, first of all, this is an aristocracy. This headspace. I saw (laughs) your eyebrow raise and I was like, what? (laughs) But like when you think about this aristocracy and like the culture and, you know, the intellectualism at the time, and it's like, but they were still just fucking cutting off heads. Right. And then taking molds of them and looking at them and being fascinated with them. Right. Human beings are fascinating creatures, dude. We're a bunch of sickos, We're really. We're fucking sickos. Bunch of freaks. I know. So then this guy, Curtius, died in 1794, and then he left Marie his collection of waxworks. A year later, she married a man named Francois Toussaint, which is where that ah, name came from. And, and she he, became a madam. Yeah, she became a madam. So they had two sons, but the marriage failed, and then she never saw the husband again after 1802, when, at 40 years old, she left her youngest child with her mother and aunt, packed up her four-year-old son and a duffel bag of disembodied aristocratic wax heads with the kid in there I, well, I don't think oh I was like you, you phrased <laughs> that I was true. like threw the kid in with the duffel bag yeah, full of, yeah sorry oh, yeah. Eight heads in a, she had eight heads in a duffel, duffel bag, bag. <laughs> right and then so she left for England to achieve quote a well filled purse now <laughs> okay right. that's, that's a right. beautiful way of saying it being like oh, I'm gonna show these fucking heads make yeah. some make some dough make a little scratch so then she spends the next 20 years touring England and Scotland and just like establishing herself and she was known to seize upon all these trends and fashions and she made new models to explore what was called quote the snobbish glamour of royalty as well as the thrill of being ufa with the latest gruesome murder or assassination I think the ufa however you say that just means like being aware of or mm-hmm. having knowledge Mm-hmm. So again, like this interesting thing of like the glamour with the bloody assassination right. and the, although meanwhile, it's like, I still want to go to the death museum or the museum of death here in right. Hollywood. It's like, we're all fascinated by this shit. But also today's wax museums, at least the Tussauds ones yeah. are mostly made of celebrities and not of like the this person horrors, dead. Right? Yeah, exactly. So she settles down on Baker street in London. She was like 74 at the time and she was still greeting people personally mm-hmm. going in. And this Baker street gallery has was like 5,000 square foot salon covered in drapery and like mirrors. So people could see it. So it became this like super grandiose thing. She even got so popular to the point where she was able to purchase King George the fourth's coronation robes and Napoleon's Whoa. carriage to ornament displays in the quote, 
unquote golden chamber. That's a well-filled purse. That's a fucking <laughs> big-ass purse. So the Chamber of Horrors is what fe- featured these grisly recreations of murder scenes, so infamous that criminals headed for execution would sometimes donate their clothing to the gallery. Whoa. Yeah. So it would this is where it would like pay tribute to the revolution. They had like a working scale model of the of a guillotine. Mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette's head, Louis's head, Robespierre's head. They even had Robespierre's head like squashed in, which reflected a botched suicide attempt in which he allegedly shot off half of his own jaw. Wow. Okay. So just ha ah. and then I had talked about this before where there was this body snatcher William Burke. Do, oh, it was a duet of body snatchers, right? So it was William Burke okay. and William Hare. When a lodger died in Hare's house the men decided to sell his body to edinburgh surgeons who were like lacking cadavers Mm -hmm. and it was so successful that then they were like oh i'll just kill 16 more people and just bring them to the doctors no questions (laughs) asked so then marie made a cast of burke's head three hours after his execution in 1829 and so on and so forth so it's like so he was like whoa lucrative business you could just get bodies and sell them and we were at a time where it was just like oh Ah, great. Just this bag of the corpse. Right. Perfect. We need cadavers. No big deal. They needed them that badly. Right. That they and weren't then, asking any questions about where they came from. Yeah. <sighs> just precedent set. <laughs> it was just interesting to read that in her memoirs, it, it talked very little about her private life. Like, even though she was a really talkative person, she was very reticent about her experiences during the terror, mm. which I would imagine there was like some serious compartmentalization happening. Yeah. Well, also time. some stuff where it's like, I don't need to talk about that. Like, yeah. if, if that's only going to get me in trouble and yeah. people in trouble like well and we have a tendency to to look back in history and obviously do a lot of finger wagging and like what were they thinking but it's right. like but just look at the world in which this woman grew up like she's raised by a poor widow her mm. father's face got shot off in the war she's poor she's making her way around she finds the circle of people and then there's this revolution happening and right. heads are rolling and she, you know it's like i would imagine it's just like getting through the day i have well, the skill yeah they are, they wanting to use me instead of cut my head off i guess i'll do that and then how she kind of like later transitioned to being this hustler a la fucking pt barnum you right. know what i mean yeah. and we're like and they actually this one article that i found was commenting on that she created this modern concept of celebrity where quote renown not being something you achieve after death with a sober legacy but something you cultivate in life by slaking the public thirst Mm. and doesn't that set the stage for so much (laughs) more to come yes it does so a final final note about Ms. Madame Tussaud. She died in 1850 with credit for England's most popular tourist attraction. And even the usually grumpy satirical magazine Punch had to admit, in these days, no one can be considered properly popular unless he is admitted into the company of Madame Tussaud's celebrities in Baker Street. The only way in which a powerful and lasting impression can be made on the public mind is through the medium of wax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said earlier. Pain is temporary, but wax is forever. <laughs> yeah, that old that. saying about film applies <laughs> right, to wax. Right, right. <laughs> so, wax, you know, I want, I looked into candles. <laughs> what do you want nice. me to say? How do you want me to get into this? Yeah, There's candles. It's in the you title. Know, you know why. There's a house of it. Candles have been around since the early Greeks, and we know for sure that Romans had their Roman candles. Ah, yes. I'm kidding, but they did have their Roman candles. (laughs) Not the Roman candles. (laughs) But they had them. (laughs) Interestingly, parts of Europe, the Middle East and Africa, where lamp oil was made from olives, 
candle making didn't really go to those areas until the early Middle Ages. Okay. That's because after the collapse of the Roman Empire, changes to the whole world of trade routes made olive oil, which was the most common fuel for oil lamps, unavailable. So people turned to candles. Eventually, candles made from tallow, which were mostly outlawed because manufacturing them and burning them stunk like shit. I'm sure. So people turned to beeswax, but that was super expensive. And so candles were a huge industry for a long time, but you'll be shocked to hear that there was a massive change when the incandescent bulb was invented. Oh, okay. And candles became a purely decorative or for celebrations and vigils and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I would have thought that the Greeks had enough olives to make some oil back in their day. <laughs> But apparently they were into making candles out of tallow and beeswax in ancient times. But it's likely that those candles were rare and oil was more commonly used by gotcha. most people. Also, the Chinese had made candles from whale fat. And in India, wax was made from boiling cinnamon. Really? Yeah. Which oh, I that's interesting. Didn't know they could do that. I didn't either. Really quick about how a candle literally works. It isn't the wick that's burning, but the vapors of the wax as they come off the candlestick. So the flame heats the wax, which melts and vaporizes at a fairly consistent rate, causing a consistent flame. Oh. And as a kid, I always thought it was like the wick was on fire and the wax like stopped it from burning down somehow. But it's actually that the wick is pulling up or wicking up right. vaporized wax and burning that right in the air above it. I'm wicking up what you're putting down. Oh, there you go. <laughs> have you ever heard of ear candling? Yes, I have. Yeah. I think I've done it once and like to no real avail, but some people really fucking love it. It's supposed to be a way to get earwax out of your ears by basically sticking a candle in your ear that's like hollow in the middle and you, and burning it. And you end up with what you think is a ton of your earwax on this like paper that comes in the center of the candle. Right. Actually, that's all wax from the candle. It seemed a little phony balloons. And because you go and you're like, whoa, look at all that fucking earwax. Totally. And then it turns out that's mostly from the candle. And home candling kits usually say something like for entertainment purposes only. That is, I mean, it seems ridiculously obvious. Right. But you bamboozlers. <laughs> well, it's possible that there's something to it in terms of making it easier to wash out the earwax after doing it. But for the most part, it's a total hoax. Ear candle companies tell you that it's doing all of this amazing stuff, but it's not supported by evidence. And apparently, if it actually did work the way they say, the amount of negative pressure that the candle would need to create would actually puncture the eardrum. Right. I mean, also when you think about just when people are like, you shouldn't Q-tip your ears anymore. Like, right. you, your wax is there for a reason. It's to, like, right. keep shit out of your brain right. and, your, and your inner ear. And this is, like, trying to get that out in a way that's not Q-tips, but also still not, like, right. people think that they that their ears drained. Like, people definitely, like, have that anecdotal experience yeah. that it's happened, but there's no real evidence behind it. But also, it. if you have, like, a piece of paper, a funnel in your fucking ear for right. a while, and then you take it out, you're going to feel some relief there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, like, yeah. It's all fake. It's all fake. Just like the House of Wax. Just like the House of Wax. <laughs> I just did like a Google on wax. Just as wax well. in general? Just like wax. We'll see where this leads. <laughs> yeah. And I found something about wax worms. Are you familiar? No. I've never heard of such a thing. Hmm. Are they actually, made of the, wax? Or the, no. The, well, okay. So this is an NPR article and it is called The Lowly Waxworm May Hold the Key to Biodegrading Plastic. Ooh. I was like, sign me up, please. 
Click. (laughs) Click. So it talks about scientist and beekeeper Federica Bertocchini, who works at the Institute of Biomedicine and Biotechnology of Cantabria in Spain. And she was frustrated to find that her beehives were infested with the caterpillar larva of Galleria melonella, a.k.a. the waxworm. Mm-hmm. So Berticini told NPR that she cleaned out the hive and put the worm-infested parts in a plastic bag. The bag was made of polyethylene, which is a notoriously resilient kind of plastic that can take decades to, d- to break down. Mm-hmm. So that, along with the closely related polypropylene, is the main type of plastic found in waste. So shortly afterwards, she noticed that the worms were then crawling around her place and the plastic bag was riddled with holes. And so it got her thinking about whether they were simply chewing up the plastic or actually breaking it down chemically. Mm. So then she and a team of researchers decided to test it. So they ground up some wax worms into a pulp, dickheads, but okay, okay, yeah. and then they spread it onto the polyethylene and the plastic still degraded. So it did have to be something chemical that was going okay. on and not like a physical, like eating breakdown. What an interesting way to do that experiment. It's like be the like, chemicals ah. will all be everywhere. <laughs> Just spread it along like a nice paste. Yeah. So they also found that the worms transformed the plastic into ethylene glycol, which is commonly used in antifreeze. And so Bertacchini says it might be because the the waxworm commonly lives in beehives and eats wax and honey, and there are similarities between wax and the polyethylene. The process of biodegrading both involves breaking strong carbon bonds. So... Did you have a question? I'm just like, I'm just like quietly being like, interesting. So cool. Whoa. Right. It's worth noting that the scientists have not yet pinpointed how the worm chemically breaks down the plastic. It may not be the worm itself doing the work, but a bacteria in its gut that's the process. Well, that would be even better. Right. Exactly. You could take that. Yeah. Well, because like, yeah, it's like the idea that we're going to get like a million worms and dump them on plastic is like probably unrealistic. Yeah. But that biomimicry thing where we can like take the mechanics behind this thing and then apply it to actual uses for our own. Exactly. I mean, it's definitely looking bigger picture. It's like being able to identify whatever enzyme it is that's breaking down this plastic is is great, however you look at it. Yeah. So they're fine. They're trying to find these biotechnological solutions. And according to Bertacchini, she says the best scenario would be to isolate the molecule responsible and produce it in large scale in a lab in vitro and then distribute the molecule in large scale. But because dump also, it into the ocean, yeah, just throw it in there. There's going to be no problem there. And it's also important to, to keep in mind that the waxworm is not the only organism that can break down plastics. There's also an Indian meal moth, Plodia interpunctella, that has some gut bacteria that does the same thing, but just mm-hmm. at a slower rate. Interesting. So, again, very interesting implications. But I also found another article which it's important to keep in mind is that, you know. In history, our attempts to commandeer nature to do our dirty work sometimes doesn't go the way we had planned. Uh Whether it's like planting trees to soak up carbon dioxide or introducing invasive species for pest control or Mm -hmm. using microorganisms to clean up oil spills, this kind of thing. They talk about the Australian cane toad debacle where they they were introduced in the 30s to control crop pests, but then they ended up gorging themselves on other wildlife and spread forever and Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So bringing it back to waxworms, first of all, he, he... to your point before of saying like it's not realistic to think about um, like millions of caterpillars doing this because I think one worm gets through about two milligrams of plastic a day. <laughs> okay. So yeah. puts that in perspective. But his bigger point is the fact that it's like these waxworms like to eat beeswax. That means that they like to destroy bee colonies uh, at a time when hmm. bees are struggling to <laughs> make yeah, it in this life. Right. Although you said they're doing better, but still, but still, let's be kind to the bees. Yeah, we need them. We know we need them. It's like, you know, let's come up with a different way without necessarily manufacturing these 
worms on a grand scale. Well, yeah, because if you can make the chemical that, then you can apply it more directly and specifically without the potential of it being like taken up. Although maybe it would be eaten by other worms and then passed through in the ecosystem in some way. Right. But you mentioned that it turns the plastic into an ingredient that's in antifreeze. Yeah. I wonder how toxic or non-toxic that is. Right, exactly. They didn't didn't talk that much about... Is it better than plastic to have a ton of that? And uh, like, is that something that, that can biodegrade? Is that the idea? I, I didn't look into that. that the, I mean, it over. sounds like we know that plastic is bad. This right. is probably not as bad as just having a lot of right. plastic. Well, yeah, and that's that's interesting because it was, I said it was like ethylene glycol or something like that. Mm-hmm. But well, because the reason that polyethylene sits around in the environment is because its molecules are so hard to break down and like ordinary soil microorganisms don't have the resources for it. Well, if it's breaking down those hard to break down carbon molecules bonds Mm -hmm. then maybe after those are broken down the natural processes of the earth can actually start to break down the what's left right that's that's sort of where where my assumption is i feel like they would have spent more time on that if they were like and then we create this other shitty (laughs) environment problem yeah yeah so because the the plastic is built up from the hydrocarbon molecules in oil ideally what we'd be able to do is turn them back into oil after we use them okay so you would be like regenerating rather than just like sacrificing the plastic as waste okay so i guess that's what we're trying to get to and he was even saying that chemists have been working on doing this using Using special catalysts for a long time, but it's been really tough to do so, and only recently have they been able to find progress. He again goes back to this idea like a far easier and less hazardous solution is found in bacteria, right? Like there's so many types of bacteria that will eat almost anything. There's some that devour toxic chemicals, such as perchlorate, which is a weed killer. Others thrive amid radioactive waste. So, and even last year, a team of Japanese scientists identified a bacterium existing in the wild that can feed on another common plastic, polyethylene terephthalate, which is used to make bottles for water and soda pop, whatever. So again, like if it's this gut bacteria or some kind of enzyme, hopefully without, although if they're just grinding up worms, I guess they don't really care. About <laughs> but, you know, without like, again, exploiting nature, exploiting the animals themselves and just doing the biomimicry or figuring out what those bacteria are and then fucking create it in a lab. Bada bing, bada boom. Let's do it. Let's do let's, it. Let's, let's clean up that up. fucking Pacific garbage patch and do it with a bunch of worms. <laughs> So we all know that you can use wax for hair removal, mm-hmm. but there's another thing called nair, yep. which works by dissolving the hair instead of removing it. And that was all I knew about it. So I wanted to know what the deal was. So it's We're- called a chemical depilatory cream. I think depilatory means like depilatory oh, yeah. is your hair and it offers a longer time between hair growth specifically compared to shaving disadvantages include a shitty smell and skin irritation right so the chemical dissolves the disulfide bonds between keratin proteins and the hair shaft this leaves the hair follicle intact allowing the hair to regrow eventually, but it turns the hair itself into a gelatin consistency. Whoa. Oh, and that's why you're able to just like, and then you wipe it away or rinse it away down a drain. And I did it once. You did? (laughs) Yeah. And it it makes so much sense to me that now that I've read that, that that's what it is. Because all the hair wipes right away in this strange sci-fi way. But I didn't realize it was because the hair itself was made into a gelatin thing. That's interesting. That could be cool, but I'm just the irritation. It's like, how do you put that goo on you? Well, because Nair also contains calcium hydroxide, which is also known as lime. This compound makes the hair dissolve specifically at the root, but it also irritates the skin because it's a fucking corrosive chemical that's doing it to your skin as well as the hair. 
So it's a strange sensation. It's kind of tingly, kind of stinging, but definitely like a raw feeling on your skin. Hell yeah. And that's very strange and like the also like something about because I, I did it on my back uh-huh. and like oh. yeah I know it was a big surface area <laughs> wow. and like I couldn't tell if it was like the chemical feeling of the on my skin uh-huh. or if it was the fact that my back didn't have hair on it anymore right. but like being in the shower was like the weirdest experience That's fascinating. as each little droplet hits your skin it's fun I mean I've done many waxes I definitely tried I've never done nair but I, there was something that they were it was like an Australian product that they were advertising I was a, such a sucker for buy this product on TV infomercials. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was something called NADS. NAD. Oh, I remember, remember NADS. <laughs> I totally remember NADS. And it's, I remember it being like, it's named after my daughter Nadine or whatever. But <laughs> oh then I was like, God, NADS. No. Everybody was making like, jokes about know. NADS. <laughs> like, what are you supposed you to use this to shave? <laughs> right, exactly. You're like, you should have fucking Googled NADS in the 90s. For real. You. But anyway, that was some shit that she like put together in her fucking kitchen. It was like honey and random stuff. And she's like, hey, it really what? And it's like, you're just putting some like sticky goo on your body and then you put a strip and yeah, hopefully it'll rip. But of course it didn't work. Like, so the, NADS was like wax? It wasn't, but it wasn't wax because wax is actually efficient and gets the hair out. This was like, it was like, you remember those squeeze pops? That's just like corn syrup. Yes. It was like that. It was like putting that on your skin and then it was. Squeezing. And then the hair would and go away. You what? would, you rip it off. It okay. wasn't, uh, it okay. wasn't like nair. It wasn't chemical. Okay. Like, and by rip off, it's like you would rip off some of your hair uh. and then mostly it was just the goo still sitting there. And she even advertised it as being like, hey, you know, I made it from ingredients in the kitchen. You can even taste it. You know, so it was oh, all sweet. God, it was like, yeah, because yeah. it's fucking honey right. and like some lemon juice <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because like with nair you put it on and then you wait a specific number of minutes before wiping it right. off if, if you wait too short of a period of time the hairs haven't dissolved yet and if you wait too long of a period of time your skin is fucked mm-hmm. so oh. there's like this perfect balance where because yeah i think i had it on for too short at first and then there was like a bunch of like really weird gross looking hairs that remain oh. because you wipe away most of them but then there's like Just this like partially one. dissolved <laughs> hair and in the it's middle of your back and like, like the fly hair that's just like yeah it's really gross <laughs> they also usually put some kind of like aloe or cocoa butter or whatever into it to help soothe the skin mm-hmm. but at the end of the day it's similar to waxing but it's done differently and done without that big ripping sound that people hate so much mm-hmm. so that's the sell of it oh okay alright <laughs> I get it science did you have any favorite lines? Oh, I mean, well, I, as to a lot of the on-the-nose commentary in this this movie, there was the whole story of Carly and Chad Michael Murray and being like, you're the good twin, I'm the evil one. Right. they were twins, too, and that right. paralleled the actual good and evil twin, although they were actually But then both of them were, were good. And, the, yeah, the good pe- both of the good pe- twins were good, and right. the evil well, twins were both bad. Yeah. There was no real dichotomy. Like, Chad Michael Murray stole a car, I think, but oh, whatever. Did you? I didn't. Right. I didn't write anything down. No. I, I'm sure that there were some good lines by Paris Hilton, but I don't right. remember them. Oh, well, of course, it's like wax, literally. Well, that yeah, we've that. been saying that through all, all day, so I, that's why we yeah, yeah. scoped past it. Well, with that, <laughs> please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at oh that's a thing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at it's a joy on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And you can find us here next week doing the movie Twelve Monkeys. Oh yeah, Terry Gilliam, Bruce Willis. It's Brad, gonna be fun. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt with a crazy lazy eye. With the crazy lazy yeah. eye. Crazy. <laughs> crazy. Now we're, we'll cut before that. Bye. <laughs> Bye. It's in pieces. It's in pieces.